It's Something for Nothing, the Rush Fancast, Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, today we've got an honest-to-goodness movie director with us. How cool is that? I think it's very cool. I'm very excited for today's interview. Me too, me too. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, find us at the Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Podbean or wherever you find your podcasts. The bass intro and outro, that is Lex. And to my right is Jerry. He's got an email to get us started. <laughs> you're on my left. Right, and you're on my right. Isn't that the way it works? I don't know if that's how it works, Steve. <laughs> yeah, so this email is from Delfino. Hey, Delfino. And he says, I live in Michigan, but was raised in Monterey, Mexico. My origin story is rather interesting because I can say that I have had three Rush discoveries. Back in 1981, almost nobody knew who Rush was in my hometown. But a cousin of mine introduced me to moving pictures in all the worlds of stage, and I was blown away. My first Rush discovery. Having never heard the drums, let alone ever heard Neil's drumming before, I did not know that I would love the drums so much. I would listen to the album, but was focused on the drums mostly. It was an instant arrow to the heart. I knew I wanted to be a drummer in that moment. Although I never had formal classes or a drum set, I learned on my own by annihilating my mother's encyclopedia set placed on the bed and banging the living crap out of them. My second discovery. I never had any formal musical training, but I discovered that I could easily single out each instrument thinking anyone could do it. I learned to appreciate the complexity of Rush by comparing their music to normal and commercial music, and I learned that these guys were special and understood the meaning of progressive rock. My third discovery, living in Mexico and Spanish being my first language, I never fully understood Neil's lyrics. I knew them all by heart, but did not know what they meant entirely. I was always looking for the meaning of Neil's lyrics. And Jerry, you have made that third discovery for me and was the answer to all of my questions with your vast explanations of the lyrics. I never tire learning about Rush and I'm extremely grateful to have found your podcast. Thank you for my rediscovery of my favorite band of all time, Delfino. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks, Delfino, for that email. First of all, it doesn't surprise me that he learned a lot from you and nothing from me. <laughs> <laughs> And Jared, what a pick on the email. What a segue into today's guest. I know. Sometimes I do things right, right? <laughs> Delfino started playing drums on encyclopedias. Right. Basically air drumming. Basically air drumming. Very similar to the lead character in the movie we're about to talk about. That's right. Our guest today is award-winning writer and director who directed and starred in the cult comedy Adventures of Power, which also features Neil Peart. He also hosts a podcast called hot sticks drum show and holds the guinness world record jar for air drumming ari gold welcome to the rush fancast thank you so much for having me i realize whenever anyone says my bio out loud that it's a weird one <laughs> <laughs> that's true ari we like to start out by asking our guests their rush origin story when did you first hear rush and how did you become a fan well my movie, Adventures of Power, kind of has a fantasy version of how it actually happened. But I will admit it was moving pictures. It was Tom Sawyer. It was that red type on black on the inside sleeve that seemed a little bit scary. And they had a little bit of a scary symbol on the front when you're whatever I was, nine, I think. And uh, I'm not sure if it was my 
older sister Nina who brought it into the house or my wicked stepsister <laughs> was running around town and knew things that you know the nine-year-olds didn't know but somehow moving pictures ended up in the house and and I put it on and you know I who knows if I really remember the moment but I feel like I remember that moment when when that first you know keyboard bass drops with the drums and the tight sound of Neil's playing and the red script on black as I said somehow all of it just crystallized into you know I was just what is this and I was entranced I was also a little scared you know there's that thing when you're a little kid where like you know bands could be a little bit scary you know and so I was a little bit scared but I was scared in a good way the way you're scared by a horror movie where I'm like fascinated by it you know and then there's like witch hunt on the record i'm like are they witches is this a band <laughs> you know like what is um but uh you know so and then i i don't know how quickly i became an air drummer after that but i would imagine it was pretty fast i would imagine that like my character whose name is power in adventures of power i just started twitching <laughs> which i think is what a lot of people do and you know i've been to concerts where you know, I see lines of admittedly mostly dudes, although there are some women too, but on the side of the stage playing along with Neil. And um, I, I guess I was one of them. Yeah. Moving Pictures, the album for such a spare presentation of an album, it's very in your face, right? I always thought the same thing. It's the production or the art direction, the art direction of it. It's a very dark, yeah. almost heavy album. And then the inside pictures with them, you know, moving the, exposure of the thing i can imagine if you were nine you're like i don't know about this it seems scary and then like looking back and like this is a really basic grade a pun right they're literally moving pictures yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're moving pictures and then there's stuff about you know cinema camera you know like but it, it's kind of it's funny now looking back I'm like well, there's nothing scary here but like it, you know when you're nine it's Right. The beginning of Witch Hunt's a little scary. And also, okay, so YYZ, right? That also, I didn't know that was the airport code for Toronto. I also thought maybe that's some satanic message. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Some kind of Judas Priest kind of backwards message, right? Yeah, well, I didn't. I don't think I was aware of Judas Priest at that point. I mean, obviously, Judas Priest was already very, you know, rocking. They had a whole bunch of records, but I don't think I knew about Judas Priest until Screaming for Vengeance, which I think was like two years later, if I have my chronology yep. correct. Yeah. 1982. Yeah. So tell us more about your childhood. You mentioned you became an air drummer. Now, did you gravitate to the real drums or did you stick to your character's story? Yeah. I mean, as an air drummer, I feel that out of solidarity to other air drummers, I shouldn't maybe talk about real drums because, you know, they might find it offensive. It might make them insecure. But no, the reality is I, I did ultimately pick up drums. Not that well, but I played in my high school jazz band, which I talked with Neil about, you know, the sort of like the high school experience of first time you play in front of an audience and you suddenly are like, oh, I... Well, he, I think he's told me that he realized playing in front of an audience that he could actually be cool. And he was like, oh, this is so strange. I'm cool for a second. I should do more of this. <laughs> I don't know if playing the jazz band was 
cool, but it, it did feel good. I was never a great drummer. I mean, you know, but I did learn drums. But like a lot of drummers, you know, I started, I was probably air drumming, drumming my pillows, drumming my knees, you know, hitting my feet against the ground for a couple of years before I conceived of having a drum set. I guess there are, you know, some families where it's like, here you go, here's your instruments and like, you know, here's your garage to rehearse. And somehow it took me a while to figure out that, oh, I could be one of those people who plays drums as opposed to just you know, trying to figure out how to do the offbeat in Ramble on, you know, the, <laughs> you know, like that was one of my early air drill moments of, you know, boom, pit, boom, 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 pit, and I'm like, boom, 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 pet, boom, pet, and I was doing that with like my limbs in my bedroom, probably for, you know, quite a while before I ever held a drumstick, but you know, figuring out how to move my foot separately to my hands. Now let's talk a little bit about the origin of the movie because the message of the movie is how important and powerful music can be yeah. in your life. So how did you kind of translate that message beginning with air drumming? Like why? Well, I mean, some of it just came out of instinct. It came from me. It came from my soul. You know, there's a lot about power that's not like me. You know, he's you know one could say he's uh he's like a child child man you know but you know he he has dealt with the death of his mother and he's looking for his heartbeat and that is personal you know my mother had died in the accident that killed uh, bill graham the rock music promoter who she was dating and power's mother has died as well and the character was born when i went to an air guitar competition my brother ethan who ended up doing a bunch of songs for the movie as well as the score he invited me to an air guitar competition because he was friends with a guy named dan crane who was one of the pioneers of of air guitar and i showed up and they were just sort of talking backstage and you know there was a sign-up sheet and i was said well let me let me do this let me try this and i i didn't have a costume everyone else had these crazy costumes it was at the key club in on the hollywood strip which is a kind of historic, you know, Zeppelin would have played down the street. And anyway, but it was the air guitar night. And all I had in my trunk were, were short shorts. And I think, I guess I had a headband. I don't know why I had a headband, but so I put on the headband on the short shorts and I came back into the key club and my number was called up and they went on stage. I said, my name was power, which wasn't planned. I just said it. Maybe I'd looked at my legs and I had been biking. So it was like power. <laughs> um, and I asked them to play Tom Sawyer and I played air drums instead of air guitar. And the crowd went totally berserk. And I actually have a video of it. And so I have proof that they went totally berserk. And then the judges didn't know what to do because I wasn't playing air guitar. And they decided that though I scored highly, I couldn't proceed to the next round or something. I can't remember what happened, but I got kind of cheated out of victory in the air guitar competition playing air drums and then i i think i came back and i played just to mess with them i played a foo fighters song and i did the i started on air guitar and then i switched to air bass and then <laughs> and then for the chorus it was monkey wrench the chorus i ran back into taylor's seat and i and i did air drums and then, the, yeah, and I think that was the same night. So I must have made it to the same round. So then the audience knew that I was messing with the whole thing because like 
I was like playing by the rules. So I came out the second, you know, the second round and I did guitar and then I ended up back on the air drums just as a big F you to the whole judging thing. And then I think I just couldn't get this character out of my mind. This guy who keeps rushing back to the rushing, so to speak, uh, back to the air drums. So I started making these little videos with my girlfriend at the time. We made a video, a kind of funny video to with power, the air drummer air drumming to Kyrie Eleison by Mr. Mister, mm-hmm. which is a sort of unlikely air drum song, but but I found it funny. We went to this factory in New Jersey and I started thinking, oh, he's this guy, he works in a factory. And then separately, I was thinking of doing a movie, like a drama about this town that I lived in with my aunt, who, you know, after my mother died, I went and lived with my aunt and I was living in her basement in this small town, or this mining town in uh, New Mexico. And there was trouble with the mines and labor disputes and I thought, oh, what a cool community. I could do like a dramatic film about, you know, the the copper mines down there. And so I went to research it. And the day I landed, a new strike started. And it was like, I got back to the town. There hadn't been a strike in like a couple of years. And suddenly it's like people in the streets protesting and police lined up. And I suddenly it had this flash moment where I said, what if power was a striking copper miner? And then you, I could combine this like serious story of, you know, of people dealing with the sort of throwing out of the working class. And at the same time, do this crazy story of an air drummer who is fighting for, you know, respectability. And I realized they're kind of the same story. And the guy who is trying to make something out of nothing on the strike line is the same guy who's making something out of nothing by playing air drums. And I thought, okay, this is where the, the ridiculous meets the sublime. I can tell a story that has a heart, it has a political message, it has a spiritual message about, you know, transforming the world really from the inside out, from the heartbeat out, the heartbeat to your body, to your dance and motion, your engagement with life, to your family, to your friends, to your community, you change the whole world just from that heartbeat, just from that air drummed heartbeat, essentially. And so then when that flash came to me of combining this absurd air drumming power character with the copper miner that I wrote the first draft in, in like three and a half weeks, it was just sudden inspiration. So that's anyway, that's how it happened. And then it was, you know, a, a couple of years of trying to get this crazy movie made and doing it the way I wanted to, which was shooting in these real rough areas, both the mining town, as well as, you know, the, poor neighborhoods of New Jersey where he arrives and all this stuff I really wanted to capture. I wanted to have it be an absurd comedy, but to kind of feel the texture of America, of different sides of America and not shoot, you know, quickly like a standard indie film on, you know, all in one neighborhood of where you can get a cheap camera. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this cheap, but I'm going to do it all over the country. And so it took years to do, because I basically shot it like a bunch of short films where I'd shoot a few days and then raise money again and shoot a few more days somewhere else. And so there's a bunch of different crews and a bunch of different uh, shoots. So anyway, that, I just monologued for way too long. <laughs> you know, we live in New Jersey, so a lot of that Jersey stuff was... Well, we should talk about Jersey then. Oh, let's talk about Jersey. <laughs> there is a... This, I laughed out loud when, when the line was... When they're at the, at the end of the movie and they're, you know, really pumping each other up 
at the gym. And the one guy says, Jersey is the armpit of the country, but without an armpit, you couldn't sweat. I thought that was a great line. Because being from yeah. Jersey, you know, we hear yeah. that kind of stuff all the yeah, time. Yeah, you hear that. Yeah. No, there's a lot of Jersey. My, my, I don't know if you've listened to the soundtrack. My brother, Ethan Gold, wrote an incredible s- sequence of songs for the movie. And we wanted a theme song for the Jersey crew, which is the um, team, the air drumming team that Power joins in, in Newark. And well, I'll say that we reached out to we reached out to the boss for a song and it didn't we didn't <laughs> get the response that we got from Neil Peart. So uh, my brother was like, I'll write a Jersey anthem. I'll, I'll write the New Jersey anthem. So he wrote a song called New Jersey Nights, which I think is a masterpiece. And it's on the Adventures of Power soundtrack. And it's it's dope. So check it out next time you're feeling like you need some resurgence of your Jersey pride. You assembled such a great cast for this movie, Ari, Michael McKean, Jane Lynch, Adrian Grenier. What did you think the chances were of getting Neil Peart to appear in your movie when you first wrote it? I mean, I did not at all think it was. Well, you know, I, I must have thought it was possible because I tried. You know, if you were to ask me logically, how are you really going to get Neil to appear in your movie? And he, you know, this is before I Love You, Man. This is before he kind of returned into the lighted stage on, and also was you know, kind of willing to appear in, in these public things. He he was still in his kind of reclusive time. So, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but there there must have been a level to which I believed that it had to be so because I took the gamble of writing it with him appearing in the movie, but also him appearing in the movie was so important because Tom Sawyer appears three times in the movie so I was writing whole scenes around the rhythm of that song. And of course I could have changed it to some other song, but I did not want to change it to another song. And, you know, then I think I got, I, my music supervisor sent it to uh, Peggy who at Anthem, who was kind enough to laugh about it, laugh about this letter saying, I'm making a movie about air drummers and I want you to be in it. And she passed it on to Neil and he told me ultimately that he asked her what she thought, you know, and she, she, I guess, gave it her blessing. And, you know, in retrospect, it was, I think a really big deal because he hadn't been doing stuff in front of the camera at all. And I can't say I take credit for getting him out of his shell at that point, but I I think, I think it was a a good moment of him kind of starting to re-engage and, um, and also show a side of him, you know, his, his humor, you know, obviously he's, his uh, kind of public image as a genius, you know, even a word like professor, you know, on the drums and, you know, wordsmith, which, you know, if you're a Rush fan, you think the words are amazing. And if you're not a Rush fan, you think they're ridiculous and, you know, but nonetheless he had that image. Right. And then to come to do a movie that is clearly poking fun of him as this god i think it was a fun thing for him because he's seen you know he told he told me about the reality of looking out across the stage and just seeing this sea of arms air drumming <laughs> along with him you know so he's it's not like he was unaware of the air drum phenomenon 
uh, in general, but especially around his drumming. So, you know, he, he actually ended up not being available during the shoot of that section. But like so much else I did in the movie, I was like doing these weird backflips and you know, there's scenes where I'm walking down a hallway and it's in New Jersey and I step outside and I'm in Brooklyn and then I cross the street, I'm in Los Angeles. I mean, we, we shot 13 months. So the scene that we did with him, we shot it on a stage because he wasn't there. He, he wasn't able to come to the main competition. At the end of the movie, there's this insane competition. You know, it's kind of like Rocky for air drummers. <laughs> right. And he he shows up at the end of it. And so I had to do some non-digital like old old-fashioned film trickery to make it seem like he was there but he said that it remind when being on that kind of scrappy set and realizing that it really was an independent film this was not a hollywood film at all he said it reminded him of the early days of rush in the sense that when you start out and you're just a bunch of people with a crazy idea and you you're making something happen his sense of me and the rest of my team was familiar to him in a, in a really nice way. I mean, he wouldn't have known that before he came, but it's, I guess something in my letter also made it, it struck, a, I think it struck a chord in him where he could feel that it was a genuine, loving, humorous tribute to him from somebody who was, you know, an independent artist, which he still at heart, you know, always was. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you, if you had any conversations with him about why he decided to do it because it sounds like that was the reason for the the independence and he's kind of an independent kind of guy he appreciated not only the movie but the approach yeah i think it was the fact that we were so independent and scrappy and he just related to it you know it wasn't i mean i guess hollywood did come knocking with i love you man and that and that was a great opportunity for the band to kind of you know reach a different audience i guess but in the case of this which came earlier it was just you know it felt like exactly why he wanted to make art in the first place is to be part of these fun experiments you know and uh i mean i think he must have also been amused you know i know he told me in, in terms of the movie itself like he told me there was you know i, I knew that or i hoped that he would find this fun but there's a scene where power the air drummer has He's been fired from the copper mine just when his father is leading, who's played by Michael McKean, has just launched a major strike against the owner of the mine. So his father is horrified. He's like, you can't strike if you've been fired. So Power is, you know, kind of adrift and doesn't know what to do. And he gets hit in the face with a piece of paper that's blown from over the border in Mexico to a Mexican air drum competition. And he doesn't know that there's there's a whole world out there of people who air drum. And so he like sneaks across the border to get to this underground where I'd literally had, you know, had to be literally underground, like under the, you know, under the earth. And it's designed to be like a cockfight. Like it, it's, you know, the scene is shot to look like, like people are going to die in there. And, and I actually have some chickens in there and, and it's people betting. And there's this implication that, the air drumming is very dangerous, you right. know, um, and the climactic section of that Mexican, you know, air drum fight, they start playing Tom Sawyer and one of the like strongest Mexican air drummers goes, no, no, Neil Peart, it's demasiado peligroso. He's no, no, Neil Peart, it's, it's too dangerous. <laughs> <You know? Right. laughs> 
And Neil really liked that. Uh, he, uh, he told me that he watched that a bunch of times. He just kept laughing, you know? So, you know, I, I think it flattered his ego in the right way. It wasn't like, oh my God, you're such an amazing God. Can I learn how you, you know, instead it was like, okay, you're great. And let's like turn that up to the point of absurdity, you know? Right. Do you think Neil felt a connection to the power character? He was an outcast, kind of like Neil was when he was younger. You know, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, he must have. He didn't say that specifically to me. You know, he he related to the film. He related to the approach that we took. He didn't say that he had like a specific bond with power, the character. I mean, I hope he did, you know, but I can't say he said that. I mean, I, I think he must have related because he did tell me how he wasn't cool until he got on the drums and the feeling of like going from uncool to cool is something that i mean power never really becomes cool like <laughs> he does he's he's power all the way through and he you know in the end of the film his i won't tell you what happens but you know ultimately the the discovery is is one where he converts he converts the world rather than convincing the world of something he's not you know i think power is closer to babe the pig than any other <laughs> character in cinema and i'm serious i love that movie i love that movie but he definitely, uh, Neil definitely related to the idea of the heartbeat and the idea that music and drumming can transform the way somebody feels and the way they think and can repair the brain and can repair the heart. And that that is something you hear in his lyrics. And I felt that from him as well, that he he was moved by that aspect of it. And when we were promoting, the, I mean, actually, you know, I ended up, taking the film, we premiered the film at Sundance. Hallelujah, I got into Sundance. What a miracle, right? And then it was a, do we swear on this podcast? Sure, go ahead. It was a fucking disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> I was cutting right up to like three days before the festival. I hadn't slept in, you know, more than two or three hours in weeks. I was a nervous wreck, but we got the film ready. You know, we had been accepted. We got it ready and it was a midnight screening. And through no fault of our own, the theater wasn't ready to start screening until 1.45. It was an hour and 45 minutes late. So by the time it's almost two o'clock in the morning and people have tickets for screenings at eight, so six hours away. So it's almost two in the morning, packed theater. Harvey Weinstein is there with my temporary, temporary, very temporary agent. And he's drunk. And he, at that point, was a tastemaker, right? So everyone, you know, follows the lead of Harvey Weinstein, who I'd never met. I never did meet, but he was there. I saw him. And finally, 145, the lights go down. I say hi and, you know, enjoy the film. And 10 minutes into the film, Harvey stands up drunk and starts basically pushing people's heads out of the way to get out of the theater. Like he's done. 10 minutes in. Wow. And people start grumbling and mumbling. And now it's two o'clock, two fifteen. I'm watching the movie that I just spent three years of my life making, and people are just leaving. They're leaving before, like, twenty minutes into the film, people start walking out. And by the time the film ended, you know, at whatever it was, like three fifteen, three, three, yeah, three fifteen and change, three thirty. You know, a couple hours, almost two hours later than it should have. The the like it was like half the audience was left, and. I, I knew I was screwed. I didn't know how screwed I was, but I knew I was screwed. 
And my band played, I was on a band called the Honey Brothers, which Adrian Grenier was in. He played the drums actually in the band. And we played a show and I was like trying to put a good face on it. But already by four in the morning, there were these uh, like bloggers and people like that who were just competing with each other to see how much they could insult the movie. And it became like this pissing contest between like, you know, hipster Sundance film bloggers coming up with the most, you know, the most amazing insults they could think of about this movie. And by dawn, my agent had stopped basically returning my calls. My agent who had, who had signed me two weeks before because he thought my movie was genius. You know, now he's not returning my calls. My lawyer who also had signed me two weeks before not returning my calls and the press saying, you know, this movie is a total disaster. And, you know, Ari Gold looks like cottage cheese on screen and, and, you know, Harvey Weinstein walked out and, you know, this, you know, don't touch this movie with 10 foot pole. And it was just awful. I mean, it was like, I don't have kids, but it felt like murder. I'll just say. And I was devastated and I left the country. I went to Guatemala and where I stayed for a few months and I just, I could barely talk, you know, cause this was my heart and soul. And it wasn't just that I'd spent three years on it, but it was also, I really believed that this film had a beautiful message to share. And it just felt like the world was like, no, we're, we're going to piss on this. And then the film started getting to these other festivals and winning grand prize audience award, grand prize, another audience award. And I'm like, are they seeing the same movie that everyone hated? Like what, what is, I was just confused. I'm like, I thought it was a good movie. And now there are all these people saying it's an amazing movie and like saying, Oh, this is my favorite movie I've seen in years. And then like Hollywood is saying like, you're unemployable. And I was just, I had no idea what, which way was up. And like a year later, I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to get this movie out somehow. And so I decided to do like a road tour with it where I like played in a few theaters, you know, just, just to kind of get it out and then like, you know, piss it onto DVD. So at least some people could see it. Right. And what was amazing is that clearly at that point, I'm just pissing it out just to get it out. Right. Because people, I know people love the movie, but the kind of critical, you know, you look online and it's like, it was a shit show of what people were saying about it you know, publicly and on the internet. And Don Lombardi at Drum Channel said, Neil wants to do some stuff with you to promote the movie. And I'm like, I'm on the ropes at that point, right? I'm like trying to get back into the ring, or I guess if I'm on the ropes, I'm in the ring, but you know, see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you can just metaphor. I'm on the ropes. I'm not looking good. I'm not like, yes, I've won these audience awards and these things but the press is definitely not on my side in a big way and i'm trying to get this movie out and at the at best i'm getting ignored and at worst i'm like oh this piece of junk is trying to like you know come out from under a rock and that's the moment that neil came to help out and that more than him showing up to shoot this film for you know a new filmmaker the fact that he showed up to do interviews with me, to raise money for a music charity that I was raising money for, for uh, music education for kids. He did a drum off with me live playing Tom Sawyer on drums with me standing next to him, air drumming that we shot a drum channel. And this is on the adventures of power website. You know, the kind of like the thing that every air drummer is drinking, you know, that's not in the movie, but it, 
it's sort of spiritually in the movie, but the, we actually shot this thing and you can see him trying not to laugh <laughs> right. playing, you know, as he's playing his DW kit and I'm standing right next to him in my short shorts, like air drumming alongside him. And it's an amazing video. Just go to adventures of power.com. But like the fact that he did that when it was uncool, right. you know, clearly my film had failed some kind of public test and he knew and he said to me, you know, if you believe something like, I forget the quote exactly, but it's basically, if you if you believe the nice things people say about you, you're going to believe the mean things people say about you. So don't listen to any of them. Right. And, you know, he's got that also with Rush, too, because there were, you know, plenty of critics who, were, you know, just tore his lyrics to shreds. And, and he just kept on trucking. And so he saw me decide he must have seen me decide to keep on trucking i'm like i'm gonna get this movie out and then you know on some of these screens i'd watch it you know i hadn't seen it for a year i was still kind of traumatized traumatized for years about it but you know and then to watch it with an audience and i'd see them crying you know and there's a scene towards the end with a strike those who haven't seen it but anyway there's a scene with with the with the something going on with the copper mine strike and and phil collins is involved <laughs> <laughs> And people are crying and then they're hugging me afterwards and saying, where has this movie been all my life? And I'm like, is this the same movie that basically killed my career? I, I was just confused, you know, and, but also inspired, like, okay, this is, you know, the people are speaking and the people are, are into this and the pure heart that the movie has and the, the gentleness that power has really appeals to people in a mean world. And the kind of critical, whatever, the snobby world of independent film and, you know, didn't get that. And they wanted the comedy to be mean and they wanted it to be, you know, I guess they wanted it to be mean. I don't know what else to say, but it felt like they were bashing someone whose gentleness triggered something in them, if you know what I mean. Right. <laughs> and it was it was really cool to see how people were. You know those who knew about it which is a very small number but i was playing the film in in portland oregon and i was standing in front of the theater in my um copper miners uniform and this guy walks by with his girlfriend and like stops and just like oh my god your power and i was you know and i'm like how have you heard of me and he's like and the, his girlfriend's like he dressed as you for Halloween. Like, <laughs> dressed as me for Halloween. like, I cannot believe this. My like independent movie that nobody's seen. And it was like, yeah, I'm, I can't. And you're here in town. You're playing your movie. I'm like, yeah, I'm playing it tonight. You should come. He's like, oh, I didn't know. Sorry, I'm going to this party. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, fuck. This is the problem with independent distribution is like, I'm in Portland. It's not that big of a city. And I did my best to get like some PR out, you know, that like, I'm playing Adventures of Power. I'm coming to town. I'm playing Adventures of Power. And like a guy who dresses me as Halloween didn't know. And I was right. like, oh, this is why people need studios. Right. I mean, that whole story about not listening to your critics, you know, like you said, is, is Rush's early career, late career, their entire career. Your entire career. They got kind of a blessing towards the end. People was like, oh, okay, begrudgingly. Like, yeah, I guess right. it's cool. I admit I like them. But, right. but yeah. They were never accepted by the critical class. I know. If you read some old magazine articles about them, oof, they're brutal, brutal. Yeah. But Rush also didn't have to 
stand in a theater while everybody listened to Caress of Steel, right? Yeah. Like you did. That's the difference, right? You're saying it was worse for me? (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was so awful. I mean, it was, it was the second worst night of my life, I have to say, you know, first being, you know, my mother's dying in an accident, but, um, I wonder, you know, it never occurred to me this, but about, you know, my mom dying in a crash and his Neil's daughter dying in a crash. I wonder if that, if he found that out somehow and that affected his willingness to do the film. It didn't occur to me until just the second, Mm. but I wonder if, I wonder if that uh, touched him in some way. Well, he definitely had a a connection to the character. That's obvious. So Ari, you, you became very close with Neil after this experience. What would teenage Ari Gold think about becoming close friends with Neil Peart like you did? Well, I, I wish I became closer to him. You know, we, we hung out a few times. And um, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to claim that we were like best buds or something. But, yeah, we did hang out. And I wanted him to teach me to ride a motorcycle. And he wanted to do the Canada song hockey theme with me air drumming. And those are two <laughs> things that, that never happened. And there is that kind of grief of kind of crazy, wonderful ideas that we wanted to do that, that we never did. But, te- you know, I, I try to imagine, you know, my nine-year-old self listening to moving pictures and then imagining, I just don't think I could have imagined knowing him but I also couldn't imagine making a movie about it, you know, air drummers and the whole thing is just my nine-year-old self wouldn't have known what to make of it. Although I, maybe he would have got it too. Maybe he'd be like, cool, that's rad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, he was, I mean, Neil was such a gentle soul. If he had met my nine-year-old self, I know that he would have been just as lovely. You know, he was really just a, he was such a sweet person, uh, you know, which is whatever people say that, but, you know, his manner, you know, you, I felt really, I felt heard when I was talking with him and, and, um, and again, just the facts about what I just said about him, him stepping out of the shadows again to like publicly support and shoot extra bonus videos unpaid just for the fun of it to support my movie when critics were saying my movie was a turd that that was amazing. And he knew, he knew that, I mean, he must, he, he must've loved the movie and he must've known that people loved the movie too. You know, even though if you were looking at the internet, you wouldn't know that. We can't let you go Ari without asking you about setting the Guinness world record for air drumming. Tell us how that happened. I'm very jealous by the way, of you having a Guinness world record. Yeah. It's, um, it's a important part of my bio. (laughs) I mean, you know, having, having, being an air drummer being a professional air drummer in the sense that I, you know, am in adventures of power playing power and air drumming. So technically I'm professional. I was contacted by the San Manuel, uh, Indian casino in, uh, San Bernardino or San Bernardino County. I can't remember the town, but anyway, the San Manuel Indian Casino contacted me and said that they had set a record for air guitar uh, the previous year or a year or two before 
by having somebody conduct the largest ever air guitar ensemble and they wanted to do it for air drums and in order to pass a certain set of rules that the guinness association said they had to have it conduct their their you know crowd conducted by a professional air drummer and <laughs> i was clearly the professional air drummer on planet earth that they could call so they asked if i would be willing to come down and do there were certain things we had to do to make it qualify for an award and it was you had to have a special skill and there had to be a couple different moves. I can't remember how, how it was phrased, but they asked me to come up with this thing. So I, the, the house band was an ACDC band. So I had them hybridize a little bit of ACDC and then added a Tommy Lee, you know, a Tommy Lee flair and a Neil Peart rototom fill. And there was one other drummer that we referenced, I think. Anyway, I sort of came up with a little move that was combining four, four, I think, different drummers. And then the house band played along. And then I taught 2,300 people who were standing out there in the auditorium. I taught the move to them, you know, rehearsed it for a while. And then the band kicks in and, and I'm standing up and kind of very exaggerating, you know, like Beethoven, you know, air drumming, but big for, for you know, a, a big crowd of people. And... Um, and we did it and we got the, you know, the Guinness guy in his funny three-piece suit, you know, came up with a certificate. And you can watch that video on on airdrummer.com as well or adventuresofpower.com. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. It was fun and silly. And then I spent the night in the casino and and didn't spend any money on the slot machines because I find that ringing noise so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but they were very, you know, hospitable and, and nice. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what happened. I also have a... Uh, High Times Magazine Stoner of the Year Award. <laughs> oh. So that's also on my bio as an important. Oh, sorry, I missed that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, no, it's not. Maybe I didn't send it to you because it's not specifically air drum related, but it's kind of funny that I won Stoner of the Year from High Times Magazine and I don't smoke. <laughs> that's interesting. That's how high they are over there at High Times Magazine. That's how high they are. Well, I played a drug dealer in an independent movie, and they they liked the performance. So that's that's how it happened. But it was like a, you know, people come over to my apartment and they'll see this giant bong that says High Times Stunner of the Year, and they're like, "That's the award." It's a giant trophy in the shape of the bong. Well, of course it is. What else would it be? What else would it be? Right? A little one hitter? No, man. It's got to be yeah. a big bong. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, whoa, man, like we should toke up sometime. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't, I just don't like pot. I mean, I'd like, I, I, I support everyone who smokes it, but it's just not my jam. So what are you working on now, Ari? Any films upcoming we can look forward to? Yeah, I have, um, well, three projects uh, in this country, at least happening at once. One is the feature length version of Helicopter. I want to student Oscar for a short film I made about my mother's death in the helicopter crash that killed Bill Graham. And it, years later, I was dealing with some issues in my life. And I went to the filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky for spiritual help. And he told me I needed to do a psychomagic act, which is his form of kind of surrealistic art therapy. And so he asked me to basically reenact my mother's helicopter crash, like in her clothing and in a helicopter which is nuts. But anyway, so this movie I'm making is about my attempt to do this maybe crazy, maybe effective spiritual ritual for 
the filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky in it. So it's about family and trauma and Bill Graham and rock and roll sort of aftermath and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and you can watch the original short film on my website, aregoldfilms.com and just go to the helicopter page and you, you can see that film that won the student Oscar, but the feature is going to be cool. It's just, it's a, it's a tightrope to get the tone right. So that, cause I want someone watching it to be able to have a spiritual experience themselves where they are able to unconsciously or consciously process traumas in their own lives. And because this is the experiment is can you basically heal the traumas of the present by rewriting the past? Even if you know something horrible happened, can you rewrite it? So that's going to be a really interesting, I hope, film. It's called Helicopter, just like the short film. And then I have two TV shows that I am pitching now. One is a ecological action adventure that I think should be made by Hollywood. I got to get that door open the right way, but I'm feeling really good about it. I have a comic book for it and a little beautiful lookbook, and I shot a test for it in a Brazil uh, a few about two months ago, which I just cut together. And then I also am pitching, can I say, I'm doing something that is about a, a TV show about punk rock in California, the rise of punk rock in California from the personal perspective of somebody who was at the epicenter of it all. And I don't know if I'm, am I allowed to say these things? I don't know how these things work. Well, nothing's happened yet. I'm pitching it. So that's why I'm like, do I talk about something that's not, you know, I'm, I'm drawing a chalk circle around what I'm doing. But anyway, there's a punk rock show, there's like an ecological action adventure show, and there's my own personal story thing. Um, and I hope to get them all in front of eyeballs to change people's hearts and minds as quickly as possible because the world needs storytelling that... Um, that has a higher mission. Well, thank you so much, Ari, for telling us the story of your movie, Adventures in Power. Not only are we fans of Caress of Steel, we're fans of your movie. Thank you so much. And we're fans of you. Thanks for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. Thank you. So, Jared, I was thinking the same thing you were thinking as he was telling that story about the movie bombing at Sundance. This is Rush's story, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the lesson to learn from that story and from any band who's ever gotten bad reviews is who cares? Yeah. <laughs> who cares? And the thing I mentioned that's so true, bands don't have to sit in an auditorium and watch I people know. listen to their album. He had to watch people watch his movie for the first time. And because one guy stood up and left, they all followed like lemmings. I know. Sounds like torture, but you know, I mean, like what you like, that's really what it boils down to. Don't let the people quote unquote, in the know, sway you on anything. Just like the things you like. Yep. And there are hundreds and hundreds of movies that didn't do well at the box office that are cult classics like this one is. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Ari's stories were just great. Anyone who got to meet Neil Peart and get to know him, it's just always fascinating. It is. And it is a good movie. I suggest everyone. Oh, absolutely. Go and see it. It's hilarious. And I'm, I think I'm going to start air drumming. Jared, what do you think? No, I always air drum. I've been air drumming my whole life. No, but I mean like what Ari does, like standing up and, you know, in the oh. car. In the car, it's one thing, but... <laughs> that's right. The way he stands, you know, no stool, just... Right. That's a workout. Are you going to join an air drumming competition? I don't know. I'd think about it. Sure. All right. I'd like to see it. 
I think it might be like a Pilates kind of thing, right? <laughs> Where you could go to the gym I and everybody airdrums, right? I wouldn't know, Steve. I wouldn't know Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Ari Gold. Find us on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. The bass intro and outro, Jer. That's Lex. That's Lex. And I hope you have a great quote to wrap this up for us. Yeah, you know, I think I'll go with the scary song from Moving Pictures. Witch Hunt! Quick to judge, quick to anger, slow to understand. Ignorance and prejudice and fear walk hand in hand. They sure do. Thanks, Jer. See you later. Thank you.